Okay, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, similar to Matthew, has a birth narrative for us. Luke 1, I just want to read verses 30 through 33. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. Okay. Do you hear the Old Testament reverberations there? You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's a connection with the Old Testament again. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Now, Luke's account is similar to Matthew's, at least in this sense. The incarnation is viewed through the lens of the Old Testament. When they're explaining the fulfillment, they're using old language. And they're using old language because that which the old language pointed forward to has come. And so sometimes they use old language to describe the fulfillment. Sometimes they'll utilize unique and new language, but it also does the same thing. It tells us that which God has promised has come. Here we have our virgin-conceived Lord. That which was promised from long ago has now been fulfilled. Luke's account of The conception and the birth of our Lord, as with Matthew's, is laced with Old Testament themes, sometimes words, phrases. And so we could put it this way, this Jesus is that which was promised. This promise fulfillment theme is all over the New Testament, and for good reason. The scope uh, of the New Testament. What is the scope of the New Testament? And what I mean by scope is um, target, bullseye, in for which the New Testament came into being. We would say to explain the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ and tease out the theological implications of his sufferings and glory for the church, something like that. What's the the bullseye of the New Testament? Jesus, okay? But the way the New Testament explains the event and the events surrounding the incarnation actually pressures us to go one step further and say, you know what, ultimately, you know what the target, you know what the scope, you know what the bullseye is, of the Old Testament was the same as the new. Jesus. To come, Jesus, in the Gospels, come, and then Jesus, having come and ascended 
into high the sermons in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. So we have a promise fulfillment motif. We saw it in Matthew. You see it in Luke. You can see it in the Gospel of Mark as well. Mark doesn't start where they start, but, well, Mark does start where they start. Because, you know, if you read Mark's Gospel, by the time you get to the second verse, you know what he's doing? He's digging into the Old Testament. And he's saying, this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that which Malachi and Isaiah and probably an echo all the way back to Exodus something or other, he he conflates three texts from the Old Testament in one verse and says the prophets said this was going to take place. Mark does the same thing. Probably the most unique uh, of all the Gospels, however, is the Gospel of John, right? Because John doesn't start with a birth narrative. John doesn't even start in the Old Testament. Where does John start? He starts with God. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Nothing that has come into being come into being apart from Him. And the Word became flesh. There is the incarnation. But he just kind of passes over all the details of the humanness of the incarnation uh, and goes straight to, in one sense, the juggler. This one who has become flesh is God the Word. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. You've heard that language before. Didn't we just sing it or something close to it? See, the hymn hymn writer was borrowing from ancient creeds, ancient creeds forged in the context of discussing passages like this and and having false interpretations of them. And then the bishops, uh, the pastors, the theologians all get together and work on documents and have arguments about texts. and, And the scriptures pressured our fathers in the faith to to state themselves very clearly. And they come up with language like God from God, light from light, very God from very God. True God of true God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay? A preposition there of relation. You have Word and God. That Word is with. And the word was God. But if the word was with God and God, then there must be two persons. Okay, we're speaking Christian theology now. There must be two divine persons there. The word and the God who he is with, the Father. And the word became flesh. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. I've asked this question before, and you know what? I'm going to ask it again. It's rhetorical. It's for you to help trigger some things in your mind. Why the incarnation? Why did the Son of God become flesh? 
Why is it that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman? Remember, you'll name call his name Jesus. For, that's a pretty important word, he will save his people from their sins. If somebody asks you, hey, what's Christmas all about? It's God saving his people from their sins. How? Incarnation. Why the incarnation, though? Well, we could say he willed it. By the way, did God have to will the incarnation of the Son of God? No, we don't want to do that because then we'd say, well, who forced him to do that? God's getting forced to do something? It has to be free, right? Divine liberty to or not to save. Uh, But he willed to save. And he willed to save through the through a last Adam, as Paul calls him, a head of a race of men, one who represents others. And the others he represents are messed up, jalopies up on blocks, you know, jacked up and need to be fixed. And the fix is one who is like them, who undoes what they did and who does what they failed to do. And you say, well, if he's the last Adam, why didn't he come on the scene as an adult like the first Adam? The parallel doesn't match. First Adam in the garden. He was made perfect, which is an old word for it. He was made fully mature. Uh, Adam and Eve were created as adults. Okay? But Jesus doesn't come in as, as an adult, right? How can he be the last Adam and he comes in a different way than the first Adam? All subsequent Adamites after Adam the first and Eve came through the conjunction of man and woman through the vaginal tunnel of a woman, right? All of them. And when our Lord comes on the scene, that's the way he comes. Unlike the first Adam, but he's still called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. Why is that? Why didn't he come like the first Adam? Well, could it be that he came to obey the law in all the stages of human life and existence that have that we failed to obey the law in? Could it be that he came into a womb to come out of the womb not telling lies? You know, in the psalmist where it says, we have come out of the womb telling lies. In sin, my mother conceived me. Maybe the virginal conception is for the purpose of having a sinless son of God who represents others and who doesn't sin as an infant, doesn't sin as a child, doesn't sin as adolescent, teenager, young adult, seasoned veteran, senior citizen, seasoned citizen, or, well, he only lived until he was 30, right? But he sanctifies all of the stages of human existence, because they're all polluted. And he has to do that for us. And 
for our salvation. That's, I think, major reason why he shows up in a womb. Because his obedience was from womb, as they say, to tomb, right? And his death was not the only thing that was for us and for our salvation. His womb to tomb obedience was for us and for our salvation. Some of you have heard of the name John Murray, uh, J. Gresham, Gresham, Machen, uh, Christianity and Liberalism, a very famous book from the 1920s, I think. Machen was on his deathbed in Fargo, North Dakota. I think it was in the wintertime, too. Anyway, he sends a telegraph back to Pennsylvania, and he says to this seminary professor, a, a comrade of his, so thankful, something like this, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Obedience, we kind of know what that means, obeying the law of God. What's, why does he say active? Well, he says active as not opposed to, but as distinguished from passive. Uh, Christ suffered. Christ had things done to him, both by God and man, that he didn't earn or deserve because he violated the law of God or even the law of man. So he is passively obedient, culminating in his death, death on the cross. But he was also womb unto tomb, actively obeying the law of God throughout his whole um, experience of life as a creature, as a man on the earth. So why the incarnation for us and for our salvation? What does the incarnation of the Son of God show us about God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So here's the, here's the, here's the purpose of the incarnation. It's not so that God could love. Right? Because here's the words. God so loved that he gave. Love, I don't want to say moves God. God God is love, okay? God is love, and so he does loving things. That's a better way of saying it. Because the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. You are love and you do loving things. You seek to Cause the well-being of the object loved. And you, you, like no other, can remove all the obstacles that bring misery to the objects that you love. And he does that through giving his son to become one of us for us and for our salvation. <clears throat> this is why the, the contemplating the Incarnation calls for our humble and thankful consideration. 
our resolution, our resolve to believe the gospel, good news, and thankful worship. The Savior of sinners becomes man to save man, manifesting the love of God for his enemies. That's why the hymn writer says, praise the Savior now and ever. Praise him all beneath the skies, prostrate, lying, suffering, dying, on the cross a sacrifice, victory gaining. He beats death by death. Somebody ought to write a book. The death of death. They did. The death of death in the death of Christ. There's an ironic thing. He who was rich, being rich, became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. It's not talking about our bank accounts. It's talking about the the, the, the only begotten Son of God, assuming what Scripture calls for him poverty, which is our dignity, humanity, in order that we might receive or gain riches from him. On the cross, a sacrifice, victory, gaining, life, obtaining. Now in glory he doth rise. Man's work faileth. Christ's availeth. He is all our righteousness. He, our Savior, has forever set us free from dire distress through his merit we inherit light and peace and happiness. Sins, bonds, severed. We're delivered. Christ has bruised the serpent's head. Death no longer is the stronger. Hell itself is captive led. Christ has risen from death's prison or the tomb. He light has shed. For his favor, praise forever. Unto God the Father sing. Praise the Savior. Praise him ever. Son of God, our Lord and King. Praise the Spirit through Christ's merit. He doth us salvation bring. We're going to sing that hymn, obviously, 174. Wonderful words, especially, hopefully, in light of you know, contemplating this thing we... I don't know who named it Christmas. I really don't care. I, I do care about this. St. Nicholas was par- apparently at the one of the old um, meetings not at Chalcedon, at Nicaea, right? Did he get in a fight with somebody? Slap somebody upside the head for being a heretic or something like that? There's, there's the Santa I want. He was a real Saint Nicholas. He was apparently known for being very generous, but also uh, he was very convicted about his doctrine, you know. Um, but the most important thing is God has done this. We are beneficiaries of it. What should be our response? You remember that other hymn, 186? I can't pay you back. I can give myself away, though. Grace has come to me. All the mercies of God have been showered upon me in Christ Jesus. 
What should be my response? My response should be, all right, I'm living for him. This, I'm all in. He's all in for me. You know, I'm all in for him. May the Lord help us, and may he bless the singing of this hymn. After I pray, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for being able to think about your word and the grand statements of the birth narratives, both in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. I only scratch the surface. Um, but in scratching the surface, we saw how this announcement in both passages is tightly wound up with what the Old Testament had already said would take place. We thank you for being a God of promise. We thank you for being the God who not only gives his word, but ensures that it will come to pass. And in Jesus' first coming, many promises have come to pass, have come to fulfillment. And yet, there is more fullness of fulfillment that is in store for those who love you. That which eye has not seen, nor has ear heard. So we ask that in the meantime, before him, his coming, you'd give us the grace that we need, the resolve of heart and soul to live for Christ, not for ourselves, not for our culture, not for our family name, but for Jesus and the cause of the gospel. Give us wisdom to know how to best do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.